I do, I'm a very like black and white kind of thinking person, all or nothing personality, but I am, I feel like the older I get, the more I do realize that there's beauty, I guess, for lack of a better word, to be found in the messy area, in the gray area, and also in working it out and processing stuff and, and I guess changing your mind. So, because I just thought I was, thought I was defective. Like I knew I had these overreactions. I knew I responded to things much more emotionally and sensitively than other people in my life and I just thought like I was defective that there was like something wrong with me and and you know that I was just oversensitive and pathetic and I need to get a grip I would never have to touch it again and I would just I would never have to work this out because working this out feels so hard and so complicated and I'm like second triple quadruple guessing myself every which way and I'm so confused and so lost trying to still have this relationship with food because I need it I need to have it my guest today is Alex Light the body confidence expert author fashion designer and podcaster who makes a very welcome return to the show Alex has curated one of the most trusted and safest spaces online for people when it comes to everything relating to body image, eating disorders and body confidence. Her posts are so insightful and resonate so acutely with her 500,000 plus followers that she is often reshared by pages like The Female Lead and celebrities including Vanessa Hudgens, Kelly Clarkson and Jamila Jamil. Alex was born in Liverpool and grew up in the Wirral. She's the oldest of five sisters and studied French and linguistics at Manchester University before embarking on a career in the media. In her teens, she developed disordered eating, which escalated into a full-blown eating disorder, all against the backdrop of her career as a fashion and beauty journalist, writing for some of the UK's best-selling magazines and newspapers. After extensive therapy and counselling, Alex is now on the other side of her own eating and body image issues, and now creates the kind of content that will help steer other people away from what she went through and towards an altogether healthier perspective on food, weight, body size and shape. Alex has been instrumental in helping so many people face up to and deal with body image issues and disordered eating. And I say that confidently because I'm one of them. A few years ago, during a conversation with Alex about how I was feeling, she saw something going on beneath the surface that she gently coaxed out. And until that point, I'd been unable or perhaps unwilling to see it. I now consider myself in recovery and I'm extremely grateful to Alex for that. So there's a lot to discuss. So, Alex, welcome to the show. Here she is. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm so happy to be back. I was trying to think the last time I came on and it must have been like 2021, I think. Yeah, that would have been on Zoom. The first time you ever did the podcast was, um, oh my gosh, it was four years ago, probably four years ago this month. And you came to my house. I came to your house, your old house. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, that was that was the first podcast I'd ever done. <gasps> and look yeah. at you now, podcasting queen, <laughs> top of the charts. <laughs> did you, yeah, did you ever think that you would you would do it when you did that first podcast? Did you think, oh, that looks really interesting? Yes, I, yeah, I was fascinated by it, but I I didn't ever think that I'd have the confidence to do it. Um, and I remember just being so like in awe of you and impressed by <laughs> you. And I remember being like, she's just so good at that. She's just so good at that. So, so yeah. Oh, that's a very lovely thing of you to say. <laughs> um, well, as listeners will know, and as I'm sure you know, every episode, I ask my guests to share with me their life lessons. And I think these life lessons are really interesting because when I've gone through the catalogue, all the conversations I've had on the podcast over the last seven years, 
I realize that a lot of the really incredible stories are start at the point in which somebody realizes they had to make a decision. And with making that decision, there was something that they might lose, which is why I always open the show with talk to me about your relationship with risk, because risk essentially is moving in one direction, potentially leaving something behind with the hope that you will gain something for having taken that chance. So are you risk averse? Very. And I'm going to preface all of this by saying that this is talking about life lessons and digging into this stuff is quite scary for me. I feel that I am I am now so proficient at talking about diet culture and, and body confidence and eating disorders. Like that's where my expertise lies. But I'm not great at self-reflection I find it quite difficult and I find it quite hard to get perspective on stuff so this is a bit of a I guess a bit more of a scary interview for me I I, I hope I do it justice I'm not the most you know I I see I see your clips and and like the guests that come on and they, they just have such if it, it feels like they they can look back and very succinctly sum up like exactly what's happened to them and they've got so much perspective on everything and the and the life lessons that they've drawn from it are just so wise and I just still feel like I'm a little bit of a mess but I'm going to try my best <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you said that because that's exactly how I feel and that's why I ask other people these questions because how I look back at my past or my calculations about the things that have happened to me up to this point might vary. Like the conclusions I come to or the sums I make will might vary depending on what my mental health is like, how I'm feeling about something else or something I haven't learned yet. And so it, I do feel as though it is, a, is an ever evolving thing. And I'm always quite attracted to people who look like they've got all the answers and they've got it all figured out. Yeah. But actually, I think the real loveliness of life lies with people who are honest and who say I I don't have it all figured out but this is what I know so far I think and I think that's what you're kind of saying because that's, that's exactly what I'm, I'm saying and I do think that there and I do I'm a very like black and white kind of thinking person all or nothing personality but I am I feel like the older I get the more I do realize that there's beauty I guess for lack of a better word to be found in the messy area in the gray area and also in working it out and processing stuff and and I guess changing your mind so anyway sorry back to your original question I am I am so risk averse <laughs> so so risk averse um which is quite and when I um I was talking to you beforehand about this and I often think about my job at Hello Magazine. I was there for a really long time, like 10 years. And mm. honestly, I should have left so much sooner than I did, years, years before I did. And I just, I, I was just too scared. I was just too scared. I'm just, I'm not good at risk. I'm not throwing myself into, I'm not good at throwing myself into uncertainty. And I'm really scared of consequences. I, I'm also, I think I'm really fearful of regret. That's what I'm really scared about. I'm not good at processing regret. I'm not good at being, sitting with regret. I mm. hate it. It makes me panic. It makes me freak. So I feel like I almost have too much. I feel like I have a lot of control over my life in order to try and manage that. Regret is a very, very scary feeling for me. It's interesting as you're speaking, I'm like everything I can completely relate to. And I think for really? me, for a long time, I was like, um, 
the way that I would think about things is I'd be so terrified of making a mistake that I would not act. But that often meant that I would stay in a situation that I was unhappy in or that I was uncomfortable about because the, my worst fear was that I would make a decision and other people would say, oh, God, really? Yeah. yeah. You made a mistake. And then I would have to live with the consequences and no one else. And I I didn't know how to re- how to repair that. <laughs> like, how do I live with those consequences? So it sounds like there's a symmetry there. Yeah, definitely. And, and as well, it was you know, it's also the fear of the consequences on other people mm. as well. When when we were talking about risk, I, I always go back to, I mean, yeah, I should have left my job a lot earlier, but it's fine, it worked out. Um, but with my boyfriend as well, my ex-boyfriend, we were together for such a long time. And I knew for a long time, for a good, you know, good few years that it wasn't, it wasn't right. Um, I knew that it wasn't working out. I knew that we probably weren't meant to be together in that capacity, but I was so scared of hurting other people, scared of hurting him, scared of hurting my mum and my family. Like he'd become family to us at that point. I was just so scared of it all, of it all that I didn't do anything. And I, I, I wish I had. Is it fear of being the squeaky wheel? causing the problem causing the thing that yeah 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 and then having to live with that and like and causing the upset and just yeah yeah the consequences on other people as well yeah again another thing I can relate to because I think uh I'm as regular listeners will know and as you will know as my friend Alex I'm quite good at speaking about my emotions but I think maybe growing up I spoke about them too much and it was a bit like piped down so I did for a long time put a lid on them so I didn't Mm. make any noise outwardly but there was a lot of noise going on internally and I think there's a a way that you've obviously been able to find as well where you can kind of release that pressure a bit so that it's not one or the other that's interesting do you think that because I put a lot of my I'm not good at regulating my emotions I find it very difficult um and they often like come out in bigger like scarier ways and you know than is out as disproportionate to to what they actually are and I do put a lot of that down to what you just what you said the fact that I had so much going on inside my head but I was very much told to keep it inside my head and not externalize it not vocalize it and not work it out and I do do you like do you have like struggle with regulating your emotions absolutely so it would be an overreaction previously it would have been an overreaction and then when I went into therapy I think I developed the skill of underreacting and now because I think when you I think when you work on something like that the pendulum always swings a little bit too far the other way yeah as you try to course correct and Mm -hmm. as it's recalibrated I think I'm much better at making peace with things than I used to be so but I yeah I think that the disproportionate reaction thing was something that I got really embarrassed about and I'm guessing from what you're saying it's what used to happen to you because maybe you would say to your friends or your family this and they'd be like what it's not that big a deal but you're like but it's a really big deal to me and I need you to help me cope with it yes it's huge to me and any attempt to gain perspective is futile it's just I really I'm still like that I am much better. I mean, thank God for therapy. Like, 
I, I don't I do not know where I would be without therapy but I don't think I'd be in a very happy place at all um but yeah I st- I still I still struggle with that with with getting perspective on things and I I really it takes me time with my emotions it really does take me time to work through them I, I don't find it easy at all did you know that you were let's just sort of call it for this sounds un. Did you know that you were an overreactor? Did you know that there was a, an issue with regulating your emotions, or was therapy the thing that helped you put words to your feelings and understand what was going on? Because I think there's what I think that's what's great about therapy when you can put a name to something and then work on it. But if you don't know what that thing is, yes. it can be scary. And also going back to the root of 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 where it comes from and what it is as well. That to me is so important because I just thought I was thought I was defective. Like I knew I had these overreactions. I knew I responded to things much more emotionally and sensitively than other people in my life. And I just thought like I was defective, that there was like something wrong with me and and you know, that I was just oversensitive and pathetic and I need to get a grip. And that was what is magical for me about therapy is realizing first of all you're right putting a name to it so so important and also getting to grips with why it's there in the first place because then that sort of taps into you 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 then can be compassionate about it and you can understand you can sort of be self-compassionate then and, and realize like oh actually it's not me I'm not I'm not it's not defective like there's something behind this there is something that's gone on to cause this and that's totally understandable and if anyone else was telling me the same thing I would have so much compassion for them so exactly so talk to me about what happens if you do because for people like us I think it can be a big thing to say to somebody that thing that you did or said that hurt my feelings that I mean that would take me days to run up to saying that to somebody so talk to me about how you would respond if someone said Alex you're just being a bit sensitive (laughs) oh my god I like triggered <laughs> full on like like leaving my body in absolute pain triggered <laughs> but like the annoying thing about me that I hate and that I really try to work on is that my default mode is like passive aggression <laughs> I, yeah, yeah and I hate it I really do hate it and all my sisters know it and I really do try and work hard on that but like that's my default because I while I am like incredibly sensitive and things hurt my feelings less so now, but they, you know, still do. But in the past, especially really hurt my feelings a lot, but I would never, ever have the courage to tell someone that they'd hurt my feelings ever. So I would just like lash out in petty, small, passive, aggressive ways. And I hate myself for saying it and I hate myself for doing it because I just wish like everything is so much better when people are honest and upfront and open and you can like you can work stuff out in 30 seconds as opposed to this long drawn out build-up of shit that can like really genuinely affect a relationship um so I am I am working on that but yeah I'm I'm definitely not at a point where I'm I'm like comfortable with saying to someone that actually really hurt my feelings can we talk about it? Mm. Just skin crawl. Like I just want to run out of the room. <laughs> Do you know what? And I we, we'll just offer this to you and also to listeners. I had it a little while ago with someone where I was like, oh, they they've really crossed the boundaries now a few times. I need to say something. 
And actually, and obviously the response was, Emma, you were just being sensitive. And I was like, oh God, well, that tells me everything I need to know. So my yeah. relationship with that person is fundamentally changed. But what perhaps that person didn't appreciate is that the fact that I even went to them in the first place and said, look, I I just want to have, have this out with you because, and it was because I genuinely love them. And I didn't, and I didn't want to lose them, but yeah. I was go, but things were, there was something going on that wasn't being said. Yeah. And you know what it's like when you're in a relationship with somebody, whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, you're the only two in that dynamic. You can sense whether something's off. Right. So it's like, let's just bring this out into the light and talk about it. But the risk there is if I bring this to the table, one of the potential outcomes is that friendship ends or changes and won't right. be as present in my life. Right. And that's the scary thing, isn't it? Because as well, and this is what I struggle with as well, is that I have done so much therapy at this point. Like <laughs> if I was out of all the hours I've definitely spend like months and months and months solid time, doing therapy. time well spent though the best time the best time spent. Yeah. but I have le- I've learned so much about myself and about about how to interact with others but that doesn't necessarily apply for the people that you're going to then interact with they they haven't had the same therapy they haven't ha- they they haven't I don't want to say like developed because I don't want to sound like I'm this like I'm still shit at so much but they they haven't they haven't developed on things that I might that, that I might have done so it's really difficult then to reconcile that and try to preempt and manage whether this is going to be is this actually going to be useful or like you say am I going to lose a friendship over it or am I going to like you know irreparably damage a friendship yeah so I, I... that quite hard yeah, I had Dr. Nicola Perra on the podcast a little while ago, and she just, I mean, her tweets, her social media is just absolutely phenomenally, phenomenally useful and insightful. And one of the things she says is that, say, say you're in a family dynamic. Yeah. Every family dynamic is, difun- is dysfunctional in its own way. Yeah. You are the one person in that family who begins to do the work. Mm. You become the problem. Because exactly right. as you say, your perception of that dynamic, of that environment, of those people is fundamentally altered and you will interact differently. Yeah. And the consequence of that is that they will feel that and they will interact differently with you. And for a while, you can become the focal point of the problem, which yeah, I think yeah, is yeah. always worth bearing in mind. And my therapist yeah. also said to me, just bear in mind that when you make these changes, when you do this work, you will lose people along the way. Yeah. Because they're not ready. Mm. But then I don't like that. I really don't like that because I I know without the therapy that I've done, I'd be this, exactly the same, you know. So I do struggle with that. But ultimately, the the person who has done the work, for lack of a better term, is generally the one that's the mo- most healthy and coming from the most healthy place and interacting in the most healthy way. So I guess it's a I guess it's just a necessity, but it is, yeah, it's quite sad. You said there, which I will unpick just for, for my own therapy. <laughs> um, you, when I said you lose people along the way when you begin to do the work, obviously not with family, because I think that's something you put a huge amount of work into. But I've sort of, I've definitely made peace with that, that as I change, there are people that will become, that will be drawn closer and there are people that will get further away. And I, 
I get I guess I made peace with that and saw it as part of the process but that doesn't seem to sit well with you at all you don't want to lose people in that way no no I guess as well because yeah no that that really terrifies me because I also I just appreciate that I've been I was lucky to to be introduced to therapy and very lucky to have sustained access to therapy that other people just don't you know it just never comes about for them Mm. and I so I have a lot of compassion for because if I hadn't had all this therapy I would still be stuck in exactly the same place yeah and that therapy is the the hands down the only thing that has got me out of of so much of my really toxic thinking and my toxic behavior and so I have a lot of empathy for people who haven't like uncovered that yet Mm. you know but as a a sensitive person have you ever felt hurt by other people and doing the work means that perhaps you you have part of the process that you are gatekeeping your emotions because actually you just don't attract yeah. those people and perhaps the people who might have been in your orbit or in your gravitational pull who could hurt you tend to move away I think I mean it like that not that you sort of you cut things off and there's some sort of horrible sudden thing with someone who yeah. you had a great relationship with it's almost like the negative gets further away that's what I mean by losing people yeah 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 that makes sense I think I, I'm thinking of this as well in like when I talk to other people about a lot of people come to me and say, you know, my mum is making, my mum continues to make comments about my weight or my family continue, continues to make comments about my weight or my boyfriend or, or whoever. And when it comes to that, I'm always very strong and, you know, you have to set your boundaries. You are the healthy one. Your mental health is the number one priority. So create your distance, however that might be, or just set your boundaries very firmly in place and, and, you know, in, in, and invite them into that, you know, you can initially invite them into helping create those boundaries. And if not, then you create your distance. Um, so I guess it's weird that I would feel so strong about it in that way when it's really no different in, in, in any other way. Right. Well, yeah, I guess with that, you know what you know what the other side of that looks like of not mm. having those boundaries is not having those boundaries is having that toxic relationship with food being gripped by an eating disorder, perhaps. And so you know that you have to gatekeep and you have to put boundaries in place, but, but because you know what what the cost is, what you could potentially have to lose. Whereas I think it's a little bit more sort of. um intangible when it comes to people around you yeah it's abstract for sure yeah but you are right in that like the I mean just a bit like to be a total cliche like life is short super short and the further we can move away from negativity in all aspects of our lives and the further you know the more that we can enrich our lives and and like cultivate positivity the better so actually I I think you're you're probably right. Like if those if those people do naturally move further, like gravitate, you know, away from you, that's probably a good thing. Mm. I suppose this is a really obvious question to ask. And again, this is just going to sound like me having a therapy session with you. But do you think it's do you think there's any coincidence in the fact that two people who are recovered highly sensitive people, if you like, or recovering highly sensitive people, have had such uh such difficult life limiting issues with food and body image do you know what I've never thought about it in that 
way before I've thought about it in the sense that like my perfectionist tendencies and my all or nothing thinking like I think that is really played into my relationship with food but probably over do you know what you're probably quite spot on there actually I mean I, I think you're the same as me in that food has always been a real source of comfort oh it's a good time yeah yeah and I I, I don't know if this is this resonates with you as well but it's always been for me a way to regulate my nervous system regulate my emotions feel more level kind of numb out a bit from what I'm feeling from the intensity of what I'm feeling so actually you're probably spot on that it's to do with being a highly sensitive person yeah that's they're probably intrinsically linked actually yeah it's that emotional regulation that you talked about earlier just kind of like I'm having all of these emotions they aren't being received by other people but Mm. food always receives it food always receives them and makes me feel better for having them (laughs) It's, it's, it's like, it's my ultimate, still my ultimate escapism. (laughs) And it's my, it's my, it's my, it's my turn to, and I think I've really made peace with that rather than trying to solve that. I've kind of made peace with that over the past couple of years, um, rather than like pathologize it, Mm -hmm. um, but use it in a way that feels more healthy, but still is an, you know, an acceptable and, and, you know, viable crutch for me when I do need that emotional regulation but it's 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 powerful for me and I think it always will be super powerful food yeah and that can tip over that definitely can tip over into like unhealth like toxic a toxic relationship but yeah I I do think that a relationship with food an unhealthy relationship with food is very much linked to mental health yeah and then and then whatever 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 other tangles have you've developed which let's face it happened to us in childhood with all the stuff that we see so if you are using that for emotional regulation but then you've also picked up all the other stuff like you know barbies and everyone's got a flat stomach and then you it's your behaviors with food or odds with what you want to look like and things like that that just that's where it becomes a real minefield it's such a minefield, right? <laughs> it is, and I think everyone's thing is so unique. But it's when you put it like that, it's it's actually like it makes sense that so many of us are so screwed up about body image and and with food as well, because it is this source of comfort, and it's also like we don't we don't just learn that as well. It's kind of like it's painted to us as a source of comfort and and a way of treating ourselves and a way of being like. Um, rewarding ourselves as well and then yeah and then that's totally at odds with the fact that we're supposed to eat as little of it as possible in order to look a certain way so it's like how fucked is that (laughs) it's really I I I think well for, for you and I know that when I when I asked you like what's your the biggest risk you had two and one of them was actually like putting your trust in professionals to help you untangle all of that so that you could move forward in your life without being governed by this mm. constant pull towards or away from food but um yeah I mean I guess how how did that shift begin for you slowly and painfully um my I mean I'd had an eating disorder for so long and it was like 
it's so it's so strange and I know you'll be able to relate to this but it's like it's simultaneously like your best friend and your worst em- enemy and it's the most it's the most comforting yet toxic and harmful relationship but it's so hard to let go of mm-hmm. because it's all you know it's I mean it's the focus of your entire life it ends up becoming the focus of your entire life it's all consuming it takes over everything and I a lot of me enjoyed the control that it that it allowed me to think I have it was a it was an illusion of control it wasn't real control but I enjoyed that illusion of control Mm. and when I went to professionals and when I was like I can't carry on like this but I also don't want to let go of this control and listening to the professionals and doing what they told me, which was ultimately going to lead to me having to let go of the control and of this eating disorder was really, really, really difficult. And it was years before I actually did it. Honestly, it was, it was years. And that's why I always, I I'm always going on about, I, cause I, I think it's really important. I'm always going on about how, um, you know, recovery is not linear and also recovery is not quick because mm-hmm. I feel like I was harmed by by consuming so many narratives around going people going in for recovery and, and like everything clicking into place. And then they're like, you know, takes a little while to work out, but they're cured because it just wasn't like that for me at all. It was really slow and painful and I barely made any progress because I was just holding on so tightly to this mm-hmm. control and just so terrified to let it go. But I feel like it was my final, it was like my, I had no other choice. Ultimately, I had no other choice but to listen to what everyone was telling me to do, to try and let go. I I, I realised that I'm speaking in like really, it sounds like really abstract how I'm speaking and like not very specific, but that's just how it feels in my head is just like a grip, like a control, like just just a, a, a grip, like an iron grip on me and so yeah so releasing that and putting my mental health in other people's hands was terrifying but I think one of the best things that I've ever done Mm. I I love the idea of a grip and the reason I say that is because for me it's always felt like a pull like you know like a a, you know in in sci-fi when they're oh no we're caught in the tractor beam it's like I I, I am now I am now caught in this and I have there's nothing I can do I am now um, helpless against this pull towards in my case binge eating and yes it was just gonna happen and I just was there and it's it's so weird because you take so much pleasure from it but also it causes so much pain it's such a bizarre it's just it's such a double-edged sword it's it's so weird yeah and if you wrote it down on paper if you wrote the actions down on paper and right. presented them to me I would be like well that makes absolutely no sense but yet in the moment it feels like the most right thing that you could be doing with your time which is terrifying that's why I always always feel like I can relate to people with addiction like alcohol addiction or gambling addiction and I know the jury's out on whether food is considered an actual physiological addiction so I don't know if I'm like I don't know if it's right to to say that, but I just feel like I I relate so much, like I understand that pull, even though you you know it's going to have this detrimental effect on your on everything on your entire mm. life. But it's just like it's so powerful. 
and in the moment it's just what you need so badly one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare. that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive and june olive and june gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box and if you break it down it really comes out to two dollars a manicure which is absolutely insane it's also so easy to get salon worthy nails at home with olive and june the difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the manny system is a complete game changer the best thing about olive and june too is it's a quick dry dries in about one minute lasts for five days and full coverage in up to one to two coats visit oliveandjune.com slash perfect manny 20 for 20 percent off your first system that's oliveandjune.com slash perfect manny 20 for 20 percent off your first system yeah. I, I had um, an incredible woman on the podcast, Dr. Joanna Silver. I think she's now at Ori, but I think she was at the Nightingale, Nightingale Hospital when she came on the show. And she mm-hmm. kept repeating the same phrase over and over again, because I'm exactly like you. For me, I'm like, it's an addiction. That's the only, like when I hear people talk about their dependency on alcohol or drugs, that's all I can describe to you about food. And yet the complication with food is that I have to have some of it to live, to right. stay alive. And I remember the phrase that Joanna kept saying over and over again was, if it's an obsession with size, shape and weight, if it's your thoughts constantly governed by thinking about your size, your shape and your weight. And yeah. that really did help. Okay. That really, for me, was like, well, that's what it is. Addiction perhaps isn't the greatest vocabulary. It does feel like an addiction. But that was definitely what it was for me. I was obsessed at all times with what I looked like, how much I weighed, what size I was, what I was eating, what I wasn't eating. That They were my predominant thoughts in front of everything else, pretty much. That's um, what you're saying about we it's not like with alcohol or drugs or gambling where you can give up completely and mm. never touch it again that I'm that sounds reductive like I know it's not that easy but with food you have to like foster like you've got to cultivate this relationship with food because we need it to survive and I remember being I remember at the time feeling so bitter about that mm. and thinking you know god I just wish it was an addiction to alcohol and then I would never have to touch it again and I would just I would never have to work this out because working this out feels so hard and so complicated and I'm like second triple quadruple guessing myself every which way and I'm so confused and so lost Mm. trying to still have this relationship with food because I need it I need to have it I remember thinking that so so vividly just being like I know this is a terrible thing to say I'm not you know like this was this was in my like not very well state of mind at the time, but but feeling like God, I just wish it was something that I could just give up and never have to touch forever. But I'm I was so resentful of the fact that I had to. Yeah. That really unlocked that memory for me. You saying that because it's so true. Yeah, and and I think as well, like, I get really confused by um, the narrative out there at the moment of if you need joy, then have the donut because I'm like I've had to work so hard to sort of change what my um, what emotions I connect with food and mm. so for me and this is I'm sure you can relate to this and I think I want to come onto this in a minute about how you talk about it so much online but my recovery 
And what my recovery looks like as somebody who would binge and who mm. was constantly obsessed with food and just how can I go without it for the longest period so that then I can have as much of it as possible. Yeah. I know that my recovery to somebody who has a restrictive eating disorder or is in recovery from a restrictive eating disorder will look like I'm on a path to a problem. But, yeah. but I've never felt better about my relationship with food. It yeah. doesn't occupy my thinking at all times. Yet I know that if I were to write it down on paper, it's a massive trigger to somebody else. Yeah. What that your your weight loss, do you mean? Not my weight loss, the way that I now behave around food. Equally right. Sorry. So I so and I think what you do so brilliantly is you bring compassion to all sides. So I'm saying that because somebody who is online saying I'm and I saw this the other day. There was someone on TikTok who said, I'm having a really bad day about my body image. It's really hard being a plus size woman on social media. So I need to do the thing today that will make me feel good and support my mental health. And she she fried some cheese and put a pickle in the middle of it. And right. to me, I'm like, oh, if I was doing that, that would be me back in a place of denial. That would be me using right. food to satisfy an emotion. Therefore, to me, that looks like a negative behavior. But actually, I have to take a step back and realize that every single person's relationship and situation is completely different. My right. recovery might trigger someone else in the same way that her demonstration of what would be good for her on that day, not triggered me, but made me think that's not the right thing. I had to stop and go, if that's the right thing for you today, I have to, I have to have understanding for that. Do you know what this, and this is where I think that social media does fall short because while there is like, it's so incredible, like the wealth of information resources we have now, but it can be, it is, it can be incredibly confusing. And also, like you say, a lot of the, information and advice is once is you know it's just one size fits all and actually I think everyone everyone is on their own is has their own individual that they're, they're looking at everything through the lens of what they've been through what their brain chemistry is like now the 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 different traumas and experiences they have and that, and I really struggle when people say to me you know they, they ask me for specific advice and mm. I just can't give it and you know I, I wish that everyone had the opportunity to work with like a a, psych, a food psycho, a psychologist or a dietitian who delved into into the individual psychology around food because everyone has their own individual relationship and you have to find the best way because like you say someone saying you know, fuck it, I'm going to have the donut. It might, especially at this at this moment in time where they don't feel necessarily as recovered, it might just not be the best course of action. Mm, yeah. And it might lead to a place of triggering. It's so difficult. That's what I find really, really hard about, about social media is that it does seem to be missing a lot of the grey area. And that is something that I... <laughs> this wasn't a plug but something that I wanted to write about in the book as well was was that because I felt like there's a lot on social media a lot of posts of like intuitive eating means have have the donut have what you want go for it like you'll get back to eating intuitively like the Listen way you to were your body yeah and for people who have never listened to their body since they were a bit you know from the moment that they you know, discovered body image and learned that food can manipulate, you know, manipulating food could, you know, change the way our body looks. We haven't listened to our bodies. So 
our hunger cues are completely shut down. Our fullness cues are completely shut down. And a total reset is not as easy as like, oh, I'm just going to eat what I want for a while. For a lot of people, I mean, for some people that might work and that's great, but I did, that wasn't how it worked for me. It was a really slow, steady, gradual process of trying to tune back in to my body. And I'm still not there. I still, that's not my default. I have to work hard to be mindful with it and to get back to a place where I'm being present around food. And I think that's what I, I find missing in social media and a lot of the advice that we see on social media is like it actually needs more we need we need more information and we need a more personalized approach and we need to learn as well like what we should be eating that was what I didn't understand either because I thought I knew what I was what I should be eating I thought I was really well versed in nutrition and I understand but actually all of my beliefs around food and all my knowledge around food would have just been gleaned from different diets that I'd like picked up from over over decades. Mm. And I think that's missing as well, that people don't understand how to actually eat and like how to form a, a, a balanced plate and a balanced meal. And to know that those, you know, the, the non-nutrient dense stuff of ultimately, and I mean, this is, this is tricky and it's difficult and I'm obviously not a dietitian or, or, um, an expert in any way, but the non-nutrition, non-nutrition dense stuff, um, you know, sh- should only make up a certain percentage mm-hmm. of your diet. Ultimately, yeah. I mean, at first you might need to give yourself like complete access to, to all of that food. But I just, yeah, I, I found that that was, that was missing for me. And it was seeing yeah. a dietitian that really, really helped me get a, get a grip on on those things and so I think it's it's fitting actually that the biggest risk and I said Alex what's the biggest risk you've ever taken and it was going from your original Instagram content your original online content which is fashion and beauty which is how we met you were on hello magazine I was on okay Mm -hmm. and uh moving and actually making that decision to occupy this space and I guess from what you're saying put something out there that perhaps hadn't existed before and I think your your sort of dawn on social media if you like when you really changed tone was I would say probably towards the end of the pro Anna kind of era that I can remember where actually that was very quietly happening online and sort of was quite sinister and we were just beginning to find the vocabulary and we were talking a bit more about body image and eating disorders and it felt it felt like maybe was it a calling do you think looking back I think so. I do also think that I was just, I was really mentally unwell at that point. And it felt like the right, it felt like an outlet for it. I don't, I don't know looking back how, um, I don't, I don't think it was very engineered and I don't think there was much thought behind it. I think a lot of it was desperation. Mm. I was just, I'm in, this really really bad place and I don't know what else to do and I'm it was kind of like a reach out and I was instantly had like positive reinforcement instantly Mm -hmm. because there were I was suddenly opened up to so many people who were in similar positions and I just never ever come across anyone before it was yeah you're right it was it was and like social media especially it was extremely curated like extreme Mm -hmm. 
perfection, but also in my friendships as well and my relationships, like anything to do with eating disorders or body image, it was really, there was a lot of stigma around it and a lot of shame around it. So I'd never had open and honest conversations with anyone. I can't say open and honest without thinking of frigging Kyle Richards. (laughs) (laughs) Open and honest. I'm so glad you brought up Real Housewives and it wasn't me. Every time I say it, I'm like, oh, I like shudder. I'm like, oh, open and then just be open and honest. Um, <laughs> sorry. Anyone who, for anyone who is a Bravo <laughs> fan or who watches The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, which is also something else that Alex and I bonded over extensively over the years, you you will understand that reference. If not, then I direct you to Hey You in the UK and overseas. Yeah, <laughs> you won't regret it. Um, but yeah, I just, I'd never, ever spoken openly to anyone about it. And I just, I thought it was only me. Like, I thought I was the only person who felt like this and that there was something wrong with me. And it was, the again, that I was like defective in some way. And suddenly having access to all these people who had similar feelings to me was just like, super powerful it just changed everything by the way did that timeline make sense to you when I talked about pro Anna because I I sort of feel like I kind of understood that that was happening much later because I think I was just I'd aged out of that kind of content at that point um but did does that timeline sort of sit with you of kind of like it was at the end of that sort of where there was another sort of wave of obsession about skinniness and body checking and that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think Instagram had been instrumental in that actually. Because I remember being, it was a time when Photoshop, when everyone was Photoshopping. I think actually, yes, it was a time when people started to Photoshop their own images. It, It went from being like, you know, professional airbrushes and like traditional media to suddenly we had access to actually Photoshopping our own images. And it was like, revolutionary and suddenly there was this wave of like everyone was just like photoshopping themselves so within an inch of their lives like I remember downloading the downloading photoshop so I could use the liquify tool this was like the pre-apps but to use a liquify tool to do it myself um and I think if another influencer had taught me I remember watching her do it on a trip and she told me she she kind of taught me the the basics of it. Um, so I think it was around that time and, when, and everything we were looking at on social media. So, yeah, suddenly it wasn't just like traditional media where all like people in the magazines, all the glossy magazines, and they're all like, oh, everyone's, you, you know, beautiful. But it, suddenly it was all, it was like people that felt much yeah. closer to you. And there was a lot less distance between you and them. And, and I think that was like... I think you're right. That was about that time. Yeah. I with, with the thing yeah. with magazine airbrushing, I kind of always thought, yes, it's not ideal if you believe that to be true. But I sort of feel like with magazines, there was kind of an understanding. These are, these are quote unquote aspirational. And I used to, as you did, you'd be on photo shoots with people. You'd see them in the flesh. You'd see the cover. There'd been a little bit of tinkering going on. But if that person then went to a premiere or walked a red carpet, you didn't see the line of paparazzi going, oh my God, she's a troll or who's that? Yeah. Because they looked close enough to... Right. So, but I think you're absolutely right. When it became more like your mate on Instagram or the influencer you kn- you knew who felt like your friend, it does take on a completely different... Um, it, it becomes it becomes more toxic for sure. Yeah, I, I think that was, that was a sinister time. Mm. Yeah. And sure. so, and, and there were you... How has being online and talking about these things and being open and honest 
And as we've discussed, recovery isn't linear. How has being open about your experiences and being receptive to other people's impacted your recovery? Um, I think... I th- I think I always talk about compassion. It's like I just I'm obsessed with compassion. And I really am. Like I just I think it I think it's the like key to almost everything. Um and I think that unlocked a lot of compassion for myself that was really needed hearing about other people's experiences and what they'd been through with food and realizing that it wasn't just like a weird me thing that there was something wrong with me but that really allowed me to be compassionate and also the way I wanted to speak to these people who were telling me very similar stories to myself the way I wanted to respond to them was with a heap of compassion because and I felt it I had all this empathy and I felt it and then and I would want to make them feel better and like desperately and then I was like then surely I can apply that to myself surely I should apply that to myself then you know like why don't I deserve that same compassion like why am I still why why am I giving out all of this compassion to other people and feeling it and feeling this strong empathy for other people when I'm still sitting here like you know hating myself for still being in this recovery and still not having this perfect recovery still feeling like I'm 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 doing I'm going one step forward and two steps back. So I think that was a really good that was a, a good lesson for me like a good shift in how I was treating myself versus other people. I I, I was- ask yeah I ask everyone like what's your greatest strength and you said your compassion. So I would be curious to know like how you define it or what it looks like or what it feels like for you because I think you're absolutely right. I think having compassion for other people's experiences is enriching for the individual who's having the compassion and it's also enriching for the person who is on the receiving end of it yeah exactly (laughs) and I think we don't I'm I'm I think I'm coming to learn that we don't solve much without compassion and I, I try and have and I'm I'm still I don't have all the answers to this I'm still working out but I try and I try and make my default compassion for everyone because I I think that really helps me to understand. Mm. And it's been, that has been so powerful for myself as well to like get rid of judgment for myself and comparison because I think that's been like self-judgment has really contributed heavily to my, to not being very mentally well and get compassion kind of negates that judgment for me so I just try and strengthen it as much as I can and there are limitations to that which I'm still kind of trying to work out but I just I and I mean an example of this as well and something that um my podcast co-host um and I you know we kind of clash on this sometimes like with um with the with sexism with misogyny my feeling is that the the way to tackle that the way to truly dismantle it is with compassion I think it has to be Mm. 
Um, because I think that also when you, if, if, if me and you having this really heated argument about something and I believe I'm right, you believe you're right. And I try and slam this down your throat. You're wrong. I'm right. I'm telling you, you're not going to change your opinion. You're not going to listen to me. You're not going to care about what I say. You're going to be triggered and defensive and it's not going to go very well. Whereas if we approach it with compassion from both sides, actually, maybe we can find a middle ground. Maybe we can get to some kind of understanding of each other and where each other's coming from. I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. I just feel like it's like the best way forward for everything. Have and I wish watched, it. Have you watched um, uh, uh, the FBI negotiator, Chris Voss? He has a masterclass. Oh, and no. one of the component parts of negotiating is called tactical empathy. And ah. it's, and again, it's very much what you're talking about, which is you don't have to agree with the person on the other side of the table. You don't have to agree with their point of view. You just have to understand it where it's coming from and make them feel heard and then you can have a negotiation and every conversation essentially is a negotiation and I think oh I love that yeah yeah. I might have to send you his book (laughs) yes oh my god okay I'm gonna watch that That sounds great so you mentioned defensiveness there and uh that was something that when I asked you before the show what's your weakness you said that can be that can be one of your default things to just be defensive So it sounds like this is a real, a real piece of work, internal work, as well as what we see from you to Mm. perhaps maybe, do you still feel defensive, but you're able to, to put a pin in it and move to compassion? Oh yeah. Easily. (laughs) Oh yeah. I definitely still feel it. It is definitely my default. And I think a lot of this as well is, is internet stuff. Yeah. With like the DMs I get or the comments I get, my instant I want to be defensive. I want to, I want to, um, be reactive, very reactive. I'm not good at that. Taking a step back and taking a breath. Uh And when I do inevitably, I feel a thousand times better than if I have reacted. Yes. So like I try and be kind to my future self and say, take a step back, take a deep breath, but I don't often win that battle. Um, because yeah, I, I get, I think I get triggered quite easily and and I instantly feel this defensiveness and I want to lash out and I really don't love that about myself. Like I wish I was more calm and measured. And also I think despite everything I'm saying, this is why I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm obsessed with compassion, but I don't think I've fully mastered it because I do struggle with when I feel right about something, like I struggle with being accepting of other people's opinions and accepting that that's an opinion and that that's okay. I don't have to change that. I can let them have that and we can both coexist and even it can be amicable. You know, I, I had this yesterday and actually before this show comes out, there will be an episode on it because someone made a comment about my body in DMS and Alex, it was actually a very complimentary message. Right. But it began with, it's nice to see somebody who's not skinny. Now, for me and my years of stuff, that was something that I immediately felt triggered by. And I wanted to go, I suddenly was like, oh, you shouldn't comment on other other people's bodies. But actually I was like, no, we can't police how other people speak to us. We can only police or have any kind of control over how we react to it. So the job here is not to tell somebody off 
and to police their vocabulary and saying, you can't say that because it upsets me. It's to develop a better internal system for dealing with it when it happens, because it's going to happen. I think there's, I, I do think that's slightly different because I do think that people shouldn't comment on people's bodies. I mean, you were describing your own breasts as pendulous. Like it was, <laughs> it was that, it was that person who then decided to take that vocabulary, vocabulary sure. and then apply it to their own. So that's different. I do think people shouldn't be coming into your inbox, say like t- describing your body shape and size. Like, I don't know, that feels a bit icky. But the thing, but, but you could start- argue, yeah, you could argue that I put a video of myself up where my in clothes I was I was modeling jeans thank you very much and so I like the body is part of the story so it's part of the editorial I can't make somebody only look at what I want them to see which is at the jeans like they're going to see everything so if someone so it's difficult isn't it (laughs) I guess then that's a step between them thinking something about your body that you can't you can't police that like they they're going to think they're going to think things about you know and especially with all the conditioning they have, we have, we all have like that's just normal. But then I feel like that crosses a line. Then to you don't have to express that. You don't have to express that to someone else and put potential something potential on them. Yeah, my um, and you've talked about um, being petty, passive aggressive. So I'm just going to say my initial response, and I was poised to type it was, "This is something you think, not something you type." <laughs> but I just took a pee. I took I took a beat and I thought, no, actually, I, I need to get better at receiving that kind of thing. People are going to make comments th- until forever. Yeah. And I they do are. have to become more robust at dealing with them. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It is. It is you're right. Like the, the, be- the better we can work on receiving those comments. Like th- that's ultimately like what's going to help us. But again, it's a balance. <laughs> Yeah, it's a balance, but uh, but also don't just don't comment on other people's bodies like that. It just is icky. Like you, they didn't. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's it, it's very well, hotly debated. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, because even if you say something positive, you don't know what someone else's where someone else's head is at, and your positive thing might be received. It's so tough. But this is what you I do like every it. day. It's it's a minefield, but also we're so used to saying to people, "Oh my God, you look, you've lost weight, you look great." Like we're so used to that, you know, and we're so used to thinness being a being used as a compliment that it's really difficult. And I think I talk about how we shouldn't compliment people for being thin, and that's always something that is controversial. But I just think ultimately we would be you know if body neutrality reigned we would all be in a much especially women in a much better place and like that would be a great step is to just not comment on how people look yeah yeah I just wonder if I just wonder if we'll ever get there I don't think so yeah I just yeah I I I don't struggle with it I don't think so I think I think at least not our generation yeah because I just think we're we're a visual generation who well maybe it will all change when we're interacting online and we're in pods but I think now when you're having face-to-face interact sort of being flippant there but when you're like if you haven't seen somebody for a while or you're meeting somebody for the first time it's Mm. just very polite to say I like your outfit or your hair looks great or the the immediate thing to do you know this like social glue is just to kind of is compliment somebody and the most obvious thing you have to compliment somebody about when you're first meeting them or in those first few seconds is something that you're seeing about them yeah 
And I, and I do it all the time. I'm always like, oh my God, I love, I love your hair. Your hair looks great. Like, I love this lipstick. Like, I love this piece of clay. I love that. I don't ever comment on bodies, but for sure I comment on appearance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you don't tell me how great I look next time I see, I'll be livid. <laughs> um, I realise that we're hurtling towards the end of our time together because you and I can talk. So it's... I'm going to be selective about the last thing I um, okay. talk to you about because there are lots of questions that we haven't got to. But um, let's go with, uh, I asked what your biggest challenge is to date that you've had to deal with, you've had to contend with, and you said your mental health your mental health struggles have dictated a huge part of your life and always will. And I think that was really interesting, as you're saying, but I'm more at peace nowadays, um, yeah. although sometimes it's really painful. And I think it might be useful for listeners to understand what that peace feels like and what work you had to do to get there. And if there's a daily work that has to be done. Uh yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> um, I think I've I've always struggled with my mental health, always. Um, and I think for the longest time, I just presumed it was all related to eating disorder. And then once that kind of worked worked its way out, I realised that actually no, I I I really struggle with my mental health as well. Um, and I found that rather than feeling frustrated and feeling really victimized by the fact that I have to struggle with my mental health like fighting that reality is super painful for me and I found that being trying to make some kind of peace with it and accept that this is just how I am it's who I am it's a part of what I am it's also probably a part of what makes me part of what makes me a a, a a good person or, or part of what makes up my personality um and I just have to accept it and be at peace with it because fighting your reality is so hard and it's so it's futile as well there is just nothing you can do it's just like hitting a brick wall so I've really tried to make peace with the fact that I will I will never be um like a you know, like a happy-go-lucky, like carefree person that just isn't me mm. and it never will be. And I will always struggle, but that just kind of feels okay right now. And then some days that doesn't feel okay, but I also I'm really trying very hard to learn and keep in mind at all times that just because I'm feeling something today doesn't mean I'm going to be feeling it tomorrow. Again, back to the, like the black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking. I'm very much like if I'm feeling like this right now, I, I don't see there's no end in sight. I don't see I don't see um, a positive outcome. Like I'm really like I'm going to feel this way forever. And I'm just trying very hard to on the days when I don't feel good to understand that this 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 isn't going to be forever it doesn't have to be forever and like tomorrow is going to be a new day and and you know my emotions and my mental health is all very fluid and um it does you know there are ups and downs and it and it changes and that's I think really like that brings a lot of optimism as well I think you're right I think sort of the idea that this is how it's always going to be is a trick that the mind can play on you. And yeah. to act, it's really empowering to say, tomorrow's just a new day. Let's just, and when you've done the work, whether it is with a therapist or let's face it, there are brilliant resources. There are great books out there now. So if you want to 
open your mind to these things, you can learn quite quickly to reframe. And I remember my therapist one day saying to me, okay, so at the moment, every time you leave the house, you assume something bad's going to happen. You assume the barista in the coffee shop doesn't like you. And so it's going to make you a terrible coffee. You assume like all of these things, it's a story you've built up in your head. But what if tomorrow when you leave the house, you're like, everything that happens is for me. Like I'm in the Truman show, but everyone just wants, everyone just wants me to be happy. And every yeah. if i miss the train it's because i was meant to get the next one for bigger reasons like imagine that you look at the world that way and that's right. really really empowering and so the fact that yeah tomorrow can just be a reset yeah exactly and that is so freeing isn't it that just feels so freeing like it feels like it unlocks that sense of like i'm trapped in this forever and it's like even if it's not you're not certain that tomorrow is going to be a better day but it's like there's a possibility it might yeah. be might not be feeling like this tomorrow and that's really nice but I think there's something also quite intoxicating about this idea and I think it there's a parallel for me with this idea and I know that you've spoken about this before and you mentioned it before the show about this idea of I will be deserving of good things when I'm thin I think we can also get caught into this idea that I will be happy when when there's a a sustained period of happiness where Mm. there are no challenges and nothing is difficult and I actually don't believe that exists anymore. Yeah. I think it comes back to that idea of being more robust about dealing with life as and when it happens. Yeah. I don't know. I agree. I, I I agree. I always used to see happiness as like this. You find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow and it's yeah. like this state of euphoria. You're almost high. Every, you're ecstatic. Like everything's amazing. There is not, and, I, and I just don't think that's true. I don't think that's what happiness is. And it's just... I think it's much more subtle and maybe it's more the absence of, of, but I don't even want to say the absence of unhappiness because I think there will always be sources of unhappiness in our lives. But mm-hmm. I think it's probably thinking about happiness as more of like a contentedness rather than a euphoric state, yeah. but just more like a low level, like everything's okay. Yeah. I'm managing. I'm finding joy in in certain aspects of my life and certain parts of my day. And maybe that's just what happiness is. And when I do the inventory at the end of the day, everything's good. It's like that that thing that love has to be chaotic and dramatic and big and loud. And and actually so many people who talk about love will say, actually, it's when it just, it doesn't feel like any of those things. It's not extreme emotions. It's just quite quiet and it's It's quite peaceful. (laughs) Yeah, it's effortless. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is what you have with Betty. <laughs> exactly. Wow, I don't know about that. She's still humping me like crazy. Still. <laughs> yeah. Goodness. Um, I'm an idiot because I should have said, Alex, could you please block out four hours this morning to do this? Because I can oh. genuinely talk to you. Like, you I really do, do feel yeah. like tip of the iceberg on so many things. Um, we have, we have a, I think we have a lot of similarities in the way we in our backgrounds, I think, and yeah. our experiences and in the way we process things and and think about things. So yeah, it's really cool to talk to you. It's always brilliant to talk to you. And I always learn so much. And I do always sort of like, you're a bit of a sort of guiding light of, if ever I feel caught in negative emotions about stuff, I can tap into you. And like, like you, you were the one who spotted in me something that I was in huge denial about. That first podcast, bringing it right back to the top of the show. Yeah. Said to me afterwards, Ems, do you 
I mean, there's this book and you were so gentle with how you were like, maybe you should read this book about binge eating. And I genuinely sort of, I think I smiled politely, but I did want to deck you because I was like, how dare you? I do not have any kind of, and I obviously say that to you with love. I did not want to deck you, but it was kind of like, I get it. I get it. It was so triggering to me. Yeah. But actually it's one of the most helpful things anyone's ever done for me. So thanks. So good. Oh, I'm so happy. That's great. And we shall continue to learn and to grow together. Um, so just uh, for the benefits of the listeners, would you mind letting them know where they can find you? And uh, yes. then, we'll, then we'll say goodbye. I'm on Instagram at alexlight underscore LDN. Fabulous. You have an excellent podcast. You have an incredible book. There are so many other things that you have done. So I will make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. But Alex Light, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I do hope you enjoyed it. I appreciate your time hugely. If you did enjoy it and you never want to miss an episode, then please do hit the subscribe button wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. It's also where you get the opportunity to leave a five-star review and a rating for how you feel about the show. And I'd be so grateful if you wouldn't mind leaving one. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Or you can DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I am at Emma Guns. If you fancy chatting to me and thousands of other fellow listeners of the podcast, then click the link to join the Facebook forum. The link to join is in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. You have to answer a couple of questions, but we cannot wait to see you there. Come over and join the conversation. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.